So as we, uh, we dig into this series again, we look at this summer series where we're exploring the reasonableness of faith. We are looking at this idea that our faith is certainly more than reasonable, but not less than reasonable. And as is typical in a summer series, we are doing standalone sermons because people are in and out all through the summer. But I would encourage you to go back if you have missed any of the other or previous um, five sermons in this series, go back. You can go to our website or you can go to uh, Google Podcasts or to Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe and listen to these sermons again. Uh, listen to these arguments about whether or not Christianity is exclusive and therefore arrogant and intolerant, whether Christianity means you have to give up your freedom, whether science has disproved the existence of God, uh, whether or not you should believe in God who allows a suffering, and why we should believe in a God that doesn't answer prayer. Today we are looking at a, a, another objection that people often give, this idea that uh, why, why do I need religion to be a good person, or I don't need religion to be a good person. And this is a question which is actually on the minds of people in our culture today. In 2017, transitioning into 2018, a very significant statistical thing happened in the New Year's resolution category. 2017 was the last year that losing weight was the most popular New Year's resolution. 2018, it was, I want to be a better person. I want to be a good person. And so slowly, since 2018, Losing weight has been less important than being a good person in the minds of those who make New Year's resolutions. And I don't know whether that means that everyone's finished their diet and they're now healthy and well, or, or whether that is truly a commitment and a desire uh, to explore what it means to be good. And we, as we look at this question, I don't need religion to be a good person, we need to dig into two assumptions that are lying underneath that. The first assumption is that religion is how we know what being a good person is. As Christians, when people say, I don't need religion to be a good person, in a sense, what they're saying is somehow it's religion that tells you what being a good person is. And I already know what being a good person is. And second assumption that's based on this statement that I don't need religion to be a good person is this goal idea that the goal of religion is to make us a good person. And then we can't achieve that goal without being religious or being a Christian or being a religious person. Now, it may be that as we explore this, we may come to the conclusion, you know what? You're perfectly right. I don't need religion to be a good person. But that may not even be what the goal of religion is. So to, to sort of deconstruct this idea, we're going to need to look at firstly, what does it mean to be a good person? And what is religion? Or at least what is the point or the purpose of the Christian religion. What is the Christian religion all about? So let's jump into firstly this idea of what is a good person. What is a good person? And really, there are two, only two common sort of answers that come up to this question. When you look at, first of all, because I because of my counseling background, because my interest in psychology, I looked at what psychologists think make a good person. And there were these three characteristics or personality traits uh, in psychology today, which they identified as being the essence or the virtues that make someone a good person. And they were wisdom, 
temperance or, or a moderate disposition, a non-reactive disposition, being just and being courageous. And I thought, it's pretty good. And then I dug a little bit deeper and I realized that this concept of virtue ethics actually is not actually new to psychology. It's actually fundamentally part of uh, ancient Greek philosophy. The ancient Greeks came and said, it's actually wisdom, temperance, justice, and courage. Those virtue ethics, those intrinsic absolutes uh, ingrained into our character, which make us a good person. Now, modern ethicists have moved away from this idea of intrinsic absolutes towards an outcome-based idea that the, the, the arguments that the modern ethicists would say make us a good person is that our actions are weighed through the lens of whether they affect or how they affect the well-being of others. And then they might add to that the idea of both inside and outside whatever tribe we belong to. And, and this is more of an outcomes-based idea of what a good person is, someone who does the things which is fundamentally good for other people. So this intrinsic and this outcome-based ideas have been consistent right throughout history. And really, when we confront these two definitions, we should all of a sudden have a whole lot of other questions. We should be confronted by this and say, well, that doesn't really answer for me because I need to know what wisdom is. I need to know what it means to be moderate or temperate, in what context that's right or wrong, and how do I do that? What does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be courageous? And, and if that's the virtue ethics set of questions we come up with, what about the outcome-based ethics uh, idea that we come up with? And I think the questions we would ask there was, well, how do I weigh the well-being of others? How do I weigh these things up and how do I trade these things off? And the weird thing is, the really weird thing is that we actually pretty much universally agree on these things. It's really not a lot of debate. Now, there's some debate around the edges, but most ethicists and moralists agree that we all basically agree on what good is. And you can see that from this quote. This is uh, Professor David uh, Pizarro. He is a Cornwell, uh, sorry, a Cornwell University professor of moral reasoning and judgment and emotion. And this is what he said, which is pretty typical of what most moral ethicists are saying. The truth is that when you're talking about broad strokes, no matter where you look, people value similar traits in character. People have the same idea of what goodness is. And that's sort of odd when you think about it. If we're all coming from different places and different cultures and have uh, evolved with different worldviews, how is it that we all have the same common idea of goodness? But there is somebody, there is someone who actually disagrees quite strongly with this idea of the fact that we're all basically struggling with this idea of goodness. We're basically all good people, and that is God. And we just read this text here uh, from Romans. And in fact, this first part of the text, and if you open it up, you'll see that the first part of the text is actually written almost as a song or a psalm. And it's taken from the Psalms, that's verses uh, 11 through to 18. It's, it's taken by Paul, as he wrote the book of Romans, from a number of different Psalms and from the book of Isaiah. And he sort of put it together as a song. And it's, it's really broken up into two parts. It's broken up into, first of all, the virtue-based pieces. And then it's broken up into the 
what we might call the outcomes-based uh, questions. And this is how God, through Paul in Romans, looks at goodness. And as I read this, I'm, I want you to see two things. He talks about how ungood we are, how sinful we are in two ways. He, he looks at the extent to which we, all of us, every single one of us, in a universal sense, we are all not good. And not only that, all of us are universally not good. So all of us are sinful and all of each of us is sinful. It's pervasive across the population. Everyone falls into the, this category and it's pervasive through us as well. So uh, let's me read verses 12 to 10 and listen for the words together, all, no one, not one as I read this. There is no one righteous, not even one there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, it's sort of interesting that, um, that this is being reinforced again and again and again through these three verses. And, and Luther, in talking about why God is sort of reinforcing this, why he's drumming at home, why he's, he's sort of driving this home in a Mack truck to make it really obvious to us, is because, you know what, it doesn't matter uh, how often we read this, we go back to the default, how we see ourselves and how we see each other. Luther says in this passage, this is not how men appear in their own eyes or to the eyes of others. We are incapable almost of seeing ourselves in this light, this is how God sees us. And so we, we struggle against this idea of being, uh, re, of being people who are, who are fundamentally not good. But that's how God sees us. And then he goes on in verses 13 to 18 to look at this idea of outcomes-based ethics. And I'll read that to you again. And listen, in this case, to the trajectory we say evil things, we do evil things, we cause evil, and we are motivated by evil. It comes right out of this passage, 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. We say evil things. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Our actions do evil things. Uh, to ruin and misery, ruin and misery mark their ways. And the ways of peace they do not know there is no fear of God in their eyes. And so we see here this idea that, again, whether you look at this from an intrinsic absolute value point of view, or whether you look at this as an outcomes-based ethical framework, God says you are not good. You are not good in the core of the way you uh, approach the world. Your, your value system is corrupted. And also your behaviors and your your uh, the outcome driven look at the way you interact with the world does not bring uh, goodness and well-being to others you don't help people thrive so and we can sort of get this right we can sort of understand this when we look around the world I mean it doesn't take us very long on a global sense to say internationally is the world in a good shape well you can look at that perhaps look at Afghanistan as an example or maybe look at global warming what about in our own country? Is our own country in a good shape? Well, let's look at race relationships. Let's look at the bivocation of our country along political lines. Let's get a little bit more personal uh, than just, what about friends? Can every one of you say, 
that you have a shalom or a peace or a thriving based relationship with all of your friends that you've never done anything at all that's ever hurt them or brought them down or made life a little harder for them or, or chipped away at their sense of self-worth or value? What about your spouse? Ever been any words of bitterness? Uh, any, ever been any cursing that's gone on between you in, in your marriage? Uh, what about with your kids? Have you ever always parented where you've never been reactive to what your kids said, never uh, sort of felt that you're out of control and let your anxiety run wild, always been totally present to them and what's going on with them? Uh, what about if we go a little deeper? What about with yourself? Do you feel a deep sense of shalom, of thriving, of wholeness within yourself? Or are there all sorts of anxieties and, and, and uh, worries and things building up and, and playing at you as you uh, walk through life? So I think we can say that why is it so hard to be good? It's why is it we're always working against our tendency to not be good or to put it in words that Paul uses, that streak of evil that seems to corrupt everything we do and to mar every piece of what we are. Now, I just want to do a little poll here. I'd just like to ask you, if you're in the congregation, feel free to put your hand up. If you have never lied, never hurt anyone, never cursed or been bitter, always known peace, and every thought, word, and action that you've ever done is about seeing other people thrive. And if you're in Zoom land, uh, Courtney, let anybody who wants to interrupt and speak up, uh, let, them, let them do so. All right. I'm not seeing a lot of hands. I'm not seeing a lot of people interrupting. And I wonder what your reaction would be if someone did. You would intrinsically simply know that's just not true. You would look at them and say, I know that's not the, the reality of being human. That's just not who we are. So how do we reconcile these? Let's start by reconciling this idea that our view of goodness and God's view of goodness don't make sense. They don't seem to line up. How can our view of God and, and God's view of, of goodness be so different? Well, uh, can we, if we pull up that slide, you'll see that we can step through this in a, in a sort of systematic way, in a sort of a theological way. And you don't have to understand the theological terms, but we all say, I know what good is. We would say that everybody knows what good is, whether they are Christian or not Christian, uh, and that the best of man, in a sense, reflects the best of God. And this is not a surprise, because we're created in the image of God. Whether we have a saving relationship with God or not, we are created in God's image, and so we reflect God's values. And so these ideas of, of wisdom and temperance and justice and courage, this idea that we want to live in a way which is uh, where there, there are distinctive and intrinsic absolutes about the values that we should have is not a surprise because we're created in God's image. And the theological term for that is Imago Dei. So that explains why people, in a sense, know what goodness is and agree what goodness is. And we also have this idea of the fact that we know that people really do try to be good. There is goodness in this world. People in cultures try to make their communities better. People who are parents try to make the lives of their 
kids better. We love the people we live with. We love the communities we live in. And so whilst there's a struggle there, there's, there's goodness in the world. There's real goodness in the world. And, and, and that's because whether we know God or not, God's grace is in the world. So as Christians, we understand this idea of goodness, both through this idea of Imago Dei, we are naturally good because we're created in the image of God in the sense that we know what goodness is and we appreciate those values and we can align with them. And this idea of common grace, which is just another theological term that means God's goodness is still in the world. God's grace is still here. He hasn't fully withdrawn. And so cultures and communities and people and corporations can aspire to do good things. But where it falls down is this idea of Comparative good and aspirational good. Comparative good is where we say, you know what? I don't murder and I don't rape and I don't steal. And I, I don't lie very often. So compared to a lot of people, I'm pretty good. It's not how God works on the, the idea of goodness. And then this idea of aspirational goodness versus, and it's a big fancy term forensic, but you can think of it as just legal or whether you stand or meet the measure goodness, aspirational goodness versus forensic goodness. Because we see in the text that we read, there's actually, uh, there's actually a, a court case going on in a sense. We read verses 19 and 20, and this is partly what, Paul, uh, what, um, uh, what we looked at when we were looking at the, the confession and the insurance. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. There is a court case where we are experiencing the judgment of the law going on. No one will be declared righteous in God's sights by the works of the law. Nobody meets the standard. Nobody meets the standard. So there's this sense in which whilst we have aspirational goodness, we do want to be good. We do want to be good parents. We want to be good friends. We want to be good citizens. We never measure up to that standard. And the corruption, the evil which is in us, uh, is still distorting and manipulating us and making us unable to be good in the standard that is being held up here. Now, can you imagine being in a courtroom today, standing before a judge, and the judge says, look, we are convicting you, you're on trial here because you embezzled uh, $10,000 from your organization. And you turned around and you said, well, you know what, that, that might be true. That might be true, but I'm actually a pretty good parent. And I, I drive well, I'm really a good driver, I obey all the road rules. And um, I'm really kind to my colleagues at work. It's true that I stole the money, but I'm nice to the people. I'm really a gentle, kind soul. And the judge is going to look at you and say, the question on the table is, did you steal the money? The other bits don't matter. The aspirational good that you're putting before us doesn't undo the evil that you have perpetrated. So when we stand in a courtroom, you can't make the claim that I am basically a good person, therefore I'm okay. You cannot stand before God and say, comparatively, I'm better than that person. And if you sum the whole thing up, I'm pretty good. It just doesn't stand the test of standing before God and saying, I'm, I'm good. So then 
We're forced to ask the question, well, what is religion or what is the Christian religion all about? Because clearly the Christian religion is not saying we have the secret source that makes you live a good life, how you can be the best possible person you can be in this, in this life and in and this time. And, and that no one else except for you uh, who are engaged in religious work of faith can be good. That's not what the Christian religion is saying. So first, we need a better definition of what sin is or not being an aspiring good person is. So let's look at verses 11 and 12, and then verses 18. So verse 11 and 12 is, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So we see here that there's a a lack of willingness to comprehend or, or be in the presence of or understand or seek the face of God. And then when we drop down to verse 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what we're seeing here in a sense is that, yes, the unrighteous or evil or destructive, damaging, broken things that we add to this world, uh, they are of course, sinful, bad things, but they are in sense symptoms. They're like a fever is to an infection. They're not the diagnosis in a sense. They're the symptom of a deeper problem. And that is that not acknowledging who God is. And that's really the diagnosis of the problem. We don't seek his face. We don't seek to understand him. We don't have any fear before him. We don't acknowledge who he is. And, and this is a radical claim by God here, because he's not just saying, and he is saying this, but he's not just saying morality is objective and absolute. He's also going on to say morality is objective and absolute, and it's me. I am that very dish definition of what goodness is. Now, we know that we have some intrinsic knowledge of that because we're created in the image of God. We know that we have some aspirational capacity for goodness because of common grace. But the great and ultimate sin then is not the symptoms that we show, but the diagnosis. It's rejecting God as creator and Lord. Now, Gail Packard, often when we were meeting here and fellowshipping downstairs, she would come up to me and she'd say, God is good. And I would always just say to her, God is good all the time. We just had this little expression about affirming our experience of God. And I, and I also love that expression. And I hope that Gail and I get to keep doing that when we get to fellowshipping again. I realize that in some ways it would be more accurate to say that good is God all the time. That whether we realize it or acknowledge it or not, the very definition of good is defined by who God is, not the other way around. We can never really sit in judgment of God and say, God is good, like saying God is God. Actually, good is what God is. So the passage that we looked at says that we're all rejectors of God, that none of us seek God, none of us fear God. And in this sense, none of us are good. But that's not even the worst of it. When you delve into scripture, the scripture goes on to say that we're powerless to do anything at all about this. We, uh, when it comes to the root of sin, that idea of rejecting God, 
just taking a quick sample, 2 Corinthians 4. We are blind to that sin of rejecting God. Ephesians 2, we are dead to sin. Luke 19, we are lost to sin. John 8, we are slaves to sin. Standing before the judge in verses 19 and 20, we have no excuse. We look at ourselves and we say we are blind, we are dead, we are lost, and we are slaves, right? We, in a sense, driven to despair, which is what the last part of verse 20 sort of implies, right? There is no one who will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we simply become conscious of our sin. We become conscious of our blindness, our deadness, our lostness, and our slavish devotion, in a sense, to the sinful nature. Now, if, and I think we need to ask this question then, so Christianity is not helping us meet our aspirational or comparative needs to be good, and it's not helping us naturally be good, then why don't we just pack up and go home? What's the point? It's a lost cause. It's, in a sense, forensically hopeless, it would seem. There is no case we can make, and, then, uh, and there's no way that we can uh, move forward in this state of being guilty of rejecting God. And the good news, the good news, the gospel, the good news is actually that the Christian religion, if you want to put it in that term, is not about helping us be good people. It's about restoring our relationship with the creator and the Lord. It's, it's about restoring our relationship with God. And I guess the question then becomes, well, how? How is our relationship restored with God? And I, I think if we did a survey of many churches, we would get a whole range of different answers. Forget about all of those people out there trying to be good. What about the people in here in the pews and on Zoom in different churches around the world? And I think we'd get answers if we did a, a pew survey of something like this. Give money to charity. Go to church. Being christened. Aspiring to be good. Being comparatively better. And hopefully in our context and in many Christian contexts, people could do better than that. But I wonder how many people would say things like, believing in God, trusting in God, having faith in Jesus. Perhaps it's these behaviors which save us. And I, I think we, we gravitate to that. I think it's easy for us, but the answer to that is no. If you look at verse 22a, the first part of 22, this righteousness is given through faith to all who believe. It is not that this faith or this belief is what saves us. It is certainly the Holy Spirit who, when we are saved, as we are saved, uh, brings belief and faith to us. But it is not our belief and our faith which saves us. And that is so important to realize because I hear so many of you come to me in despair because you feel your faith is weak and your belief is weak. And in a sense, that despair speaks volumes to the fact that the Holy Spirit is in you your life, that the Holy Spirit has touched your heart, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you. And if the Holy Spirit is in your life, if the Holy Spirit is touching your heart, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, then you have received the gift of grace. So it is not, it is not even, shall we say, belief or faith. It's the gift that's given. And what is that gift? Well, we see that uh, very clearly, this righteousness is given 
through faith. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all, and this is the key piece, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. So the two things, the one thing, in fact, that actually restores our relationship to Jesus is the fact that he went to the cross on our behalf. And he gave us that, in a sense, he, 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 took, he took the rejection that we deserve when he sat there and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gives us his righteousness. So we, when we stand in that court before God, it is not upon us that he looks, but upon Jesus, sees the righteousness of Jesus given freely to us that we are able to say that the relationship has been restored. And then the Holy Spirit in that process gives us faith and belief. But it is not our faith and belief which saves us. It is the gift of grace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It's him saying, I'll take the rejection and I will give you my righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit affecting that in us uh, through faith and belief. So then we, we come then to a, a completely different understanding of what goodness or, or righteousness uh, really is. And I, and I want to conclude by going back to our idea of philosophy just for a minute, because it's really interesting that in terms of the moral debate about whether God is real or not real, uh, atheists and theists agree with this little uh, philosophical uh, argument. If morality is objective and absolute, God must exist. Morality is objective and absolute, therefore God must exist. And everyone agrees that that logic is correct. What they disagree with is the second point. Morality is objective and absolute. Some people would say that it's contextual, that it it's, came from evolution. Christians, we say, no, it is absolutely moral. It is objective and absolute, and it is defined by the persons of the Trinity. It is defined by the very character and nature of God. And whether you believe that, that God is the one who defines goodness, or whether you believe that it is actually not objective and absolute and it comes from something else, is not something that as Christians we want to put down to a reasonable argument. The reason we believe that is because through his grace and his work on the cross and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are turned back we suddenly want to start seeking we are we are transformed we become new men and women in christ so this is not of our doing it is all of the work of the holy spirit because of the work of christ on the cross it is all gifted it is all grace so if this restored relationship is christ's work and if faith and belief are the holy spirit's work why are we even considering the philosophical question at all. And the reason for that is, and the reason for this whole series, and I want to say it again and again, is the confidence to give you confidence to live into your faith and boldness in sharing your faith. There's so many attacks on our faith. Christians are seen as being irrational, illogical, Ill intolerant, 
we want to show that that is not true, that the faith is very reasonable. And I'm reminded also of the need to be bold. If you care, you will share this. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a British evangelist, a, a man named Rico Tice. He wrote Christianity Explored with somebody else. And the interesting thing is after he wrote that and he talked about the centrality of his faith and the importance of committing all of your life to Christ and, and the, the fact that his whole life and the essence of who he is and what every Christian's life and the essence of what every Christian's life should be is built around that idea of who Christ is and how we respond to Christ. One of his atheist friends wrote him a letter and said, don't you care about me? If this really stuff really, really matters to you, why haven't you told me about it? If this is really what's at the core of who you are, why haven't you sat me down and said, hey, give this a thought, think about this, engage with this. So there's a sense in which as we come to terms with the significance and the centrality and the importance of grace, that shouldn't, the fact that it's all the work of Christ, and it's through the Holy Spirit that we have belief and faith at all, that does not take away the imperative to go out and share the significance of Christ to those we know. If you care, you will share, is the expression that Rico Tice used. One we use here, which I, I've said before, but I, I just want to sort of emphasize the, the ridiculousness of not sharing our faith, if you're in a car, a minivan, and you've been on a trip to Virginia, which we often do with our family, and we pull in at a roadhouse, and the kids get out of the car, you go get a coffee or a burger, we get back in the car and keep driving, we're a couple of miles down the road, we say, oh, one of the kids is missing. Say, so, oh, well, someone else will pick them up or we'll get them next time we're passing through. No, there's an urgency there where you turn around because someone you love isn't in the community and we go back and we pick them up. And it's a sense, that's the sense of urgency, that's the sense of love, that's the sense of caring we need to have for our community to communicate that, yes, religion does not make you a good person in the way that uh, aspirational or comparative ethics might want us to be, but grace makes us a righteous person. It makes us, it restores our relationship with God uh, uh, with, as creator and as Lord. So the challenge then is not to get into esoteric philosophical arguments. The question is, the response that I want you to have to this whole sermon series is, are you praying? Are you praying? Are you on your knees? for the Holy Spirit to touch those that you care about and that you love? Are you praying? Are you on your knees for the Holy Spirit to give you an opportunity to share your faith with them, to explain grace to them? Are you praying for the Holy Spirit's boldness? Are you on your knees praying for the Holy Spirit to give you boldness to speak when the opportunity arises? Faith is not less than reason, but it is certainly more than reason. The very fact that Christ went to the cross uh, was not about reason, it was about love. Our response then to a Christ who went to the cross because he loves us 
should be to ask ourselves, how do we respond to that love? How do we love his world like he loved his world? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we we're confronted by the different ideas of goodness. That is not comparative, it's not aspirational. That your goodness is part of us in the sense that we are created in your image and it's part of your the cultures and, and the society that we live in because you haven't withdrawn completely. Your grace is still here. But Father, ultimately, it is the fullness of restoration with you that we need, not a partial experience of your common grace or a virtue connection to you because we're creating your image, but restored personal relationship with you through the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we pray that in more and more measure for ourselves. And Father, we pray that you will use us and bless us uh, to be instruments of your grace in the lives of others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.